we've all got that voice in our head that tells us we can't do stuff. But I think that some people are just better at maybe not listening to it. And by sitting down with those people, asking them questions, and then you know, recording it and blasting it out on the internet, perhaps, maybe, I can help other people like me get out of our own way. Hey guys, welcome back to Closure Optional. This week's guest is Richie Walsh. He is a fight trainer and has been for the last 30 years or so, and the owner of Urban Fight Gym, the gym that I train out of, and uh, also the gym that Nathan Corbett fought out of. Richie trained Nathan for, I believe, all of his world titles, as well as um, living in a house and training with John Wayne Parr when he started, as well as Paul Briggs, the boxer. Uh, This is a very cool conversation with some... uh, Good insights from a guy who's lived a pretty full life. He is now a dad of three boys and a husband to his wife, Melissa, who's also a world champion Muay Thai fighter. Hope you guys enjoy the conversation, and I hope you've had a good week. Here it is. My very first fight in a nightclub, which was seedy and dirty. <laughs> and this is back in the days when you could smoke in nightclubs, and it was, oh it was disgusting. Again, that's not true. Who would fucking do that? Why would you do that? Move to the Gold Coast and boom! <laughs> and I found cocaine and that was like fucking awesome. <laughs> but there were because it, it, it started, it opens a little doorway to excuses. Hi Richie. Hey Lonzy. Thanks for coming to do my podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so as we were just kind of talking about before I even started is that the whole point of this podcast is to figure out why people don't give up on themselves and why people do. And Mm -hmm. you being a trainer over what, 28 years now? Yeah. Yeah. Pushing up close to 30. Yeah. That's insane. And how long were you fighting for? Um, so I fought a little bit as a, as a junior, uh, in a little bit of boxing and that sort of thing, probably, uh, from the age of. Or oh, maybe 16, 17, and then started Muay Thai sort of after that. I'm about to turn 46 now. So I, I probably fought up until about the age of 30, I suppose, wow. so 15 years. And then oh I took a God. couple of stupid fights towards the end that, um, as you often do towards the end of your career, you take fights at, for the money, and and that was stupid. It, it really finished me then. I, I knew I was done the last couple of fights. So. <sighs> Fifteen yeah. years—that is a long stretch to be in. Fighting. Yes, I um, I wasn't consistent enough though where I came from and and my mm. training. I, I could have been a lot more. I should have been a lot more consistent with my fighting. Um, lots of things got in the way, or I let lots of things get in the way. <laughs> like what? Uh, oh, mainly alcohol and <laughs> and partying and good times, which is great. Um, coming from a small town where um, my trainer was an excellent martial artist mm. but not a great fight trainer. Mm. He was a, he's, a, he's a, still a good martial artist, still teaches great martial arts but fight side was definitely not his strong point. So um, unfortunately that sort of rubbed off on me and being <laughs> a young influential kid I sort of uh, – I was e- easily influenced by my mates. Yeah, I mean. um, so, yeah, unfortunately, not, 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 not a regret as such but, you know, I see kids uh, – well, I call them kids but fighters these days that fight, you know, Ten times in a year. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was lucky to fight two or three times in a year. So oh wow! I, I, 
I would have loved to have had more fights in the time that I was given. So yeah, and why um why was it? So you said he wasn't a great fight trainer. Like, what was he doing? Well, he hadn't he fought just... himself, so ah, he wow. was learning at the, the fight game um, with me, not using me, but with me. So yeah, yeah. One of my first recollection recollections of um, being in the fight game was I stepped into a ring in uh, Frankston. For my very first fight in a nightclub, which was seedy and dirty. <laughs> this is back in the days when you could smoke in nightclubs and it was, oh it was disgusting. Um, I stepped in the ring and I th- and it was the first time I'd ever been in a boxing ring. And I, I looked across the, the smoky sort of six-metre square that I was in and I could see this other guy bouncing up and down and he was a beast. He was so much better shaped than I was. Oh, my God. Um, and my trainer jumped in behind me and landed on the canvas and looked at his feet and looked at me and goes, wow, this feels weird. <laughs> and, and, and it was a penny dropped and I was like, this guy's never been in a fight ring before. He's putting me oh in a ring. Oh, my God. That is the worst to have a little oh, bit no, of doubt. That, that's, the bit I, that's the bit I remember the most out of the whole <laughs> fight is, is him looking at me and going, oh, this feels really weird. And I was like, dude. <laughs> you're supposed to be my, my helper. Yeah, I'm meant to be turning to you for advice. <laughs> um, but, I mean, even leading up to that now, in hindsight, uh, we used to train uh, Monday, Wednesday and Friday nights. And on Monday he came to me and said, oh, guess what, you can get fights in Melbourne. I, I could get you a kickboxing fight. And, and I was like, do it. Just get me a fight. That's awesome, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, then on Wednesday night I turned up to train. He said, oh, I got you a fight. And I was great. When is it? And he said, oh, Sunday night. <laughs> So we had one week preparation or <laughs> even less from Wednesday. But we did it. We got a, uh, I got a team together as we oh were in country God. Victoria, which was um, from Frankston. It was about a four and a half hour drive. So we, we took a mini bus down and uh, all my mates were having a drink on the bus. And they said, oh, you look really nervous, Rich. And I said, I am. I am really nervous. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely shitting myself. Yeah, have a drink. So I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> so I had a couple of beers to cool myself there. Got down the venue and back in those days you used to, <laughs> you used to weigh in before you fight and they'd basically match you on the spot oh, to whoever wow. was the same weight and records were never discussed. You, know, you just oh used to fight. God. So, yeah, so that was that was a very big experience. Holy shit. Mm. What made you want to have that fight, like have any fight? Why I was you... angry. Angry. Really? I was angry uh, for no given reason. True. I was angry uh, from about 14 years old. I just wanted to, I used to fight a lot just in the street, just – Wow. Just punch it. And I, I've still to, I have great parents, great upbringing. Just something happened when my balls dropped. <laughs> I just become angry, you know, like, and wow. I, I still to this day don't know why. I've, That's so funny because obviously knowing you now for as long as I have, I would have never even seen you. I can see you have the potential to, like, everybody respects you mm. in a way that you kind of have this casual respect about you that nobody's going to push you. And it's obviously because you've lived the life you've lived like we know. But I would never see you as an angry person at all. Oh, I'm definitely not angry like I was. I I remember being angry. I remember starting fights for the sake of starting fights. I'd start fights with my friends. um, And then... When I got a little bit older, when I got to about 15, then uh, alcohol got involved and it just blew it out of proportion. It was oh, just, that's the worst, man. I remember just <laughs> really clearly going to um, someone's birthday party, a girl, I can't remember her name, her name is irrelevant, but she cut me off at the gate and said, my mum and dad don't want you at this party because you got a bad reputation. Mm. And I was happy with that. I was like, yeah. Yeah, I'm cool. I'm like, I know. I thought, <laughs> yeah, I'm a 15-year-old badass. You know? Oh, Richie. 
And I went in and my um, – it's funny because my, my good friend of the time, a great mate and we're still great mates, Digger, he, he was such a pacifist. He was a non-fighter and he used to say to me, if you fucking fight, I'm not jumping in to help you. He, mm, if wow. you fight two guys, you're on your own. I'm not going to – and he made it clear to me from the word go. But we, I think that's why I respected him because he's, yeah, he stood yeah, up there, you know. And uh, I went into the party with him and I was surrounded by about six older guys because this girl's brother was obviously the security and they just surrounded me. And I knew I'm fucked. I'm by myself. I'm oh, fucked. my God. And, yeah, all hell broke loose and I just yeah, started swinging, trying to hit as many as I could before they jumped me. So, And you had no training. Oh, a little bit of training, I guess, at that point. Um, yeah, probably a few boxing lessons. Um, yeah. <laughs> nothing much. It was it was pure just anger fighting, you know. Like it was, oh my it god! Been ugly How'd you get out of there alive? Oh, I mean, it it, it was probably all uh, storming a teacup. I mean, I probably got kicked out, mm. ruffled up, and that was it, you know. But oh, funny to me, it was uh, it was everything. I remember, uh, yeah, a lot of times, Dad pulling me because I come from a small town where everyone knew everyone, so everyone knew my dad. So. Mm. And the amount of times that dad would come to me on Sunday and go, what the fuck were you up to last night? And, yeah. you know, why? And then mum uh, used to always say, oh, you're like your grandfather, which I, I never actually got to meet, but he was a very angry um, alcoholic. Wow. He was actually a boxer in the in the Navy. So he was a violent, angry oh alcoholic. God. So she said, oh, you got so much of your grandfather and you've never even met him, you know. And... Uh, and I, I even thought that was cool. I thought, yeah, that's me. That's I'm fucking angry, and I'm so tough at 15 years. Oh my God. I would have weighed 60 kilos, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and you're not even a small guy either, so I was, you can't even blame it on being like a little guy no, syndrome or anything. You no, just... I, I, I still like I'm 45 now. I, I still don't know what made me angry. I, mm. I never really looked into it. There's nothing that's happened in my past that would say, right, he's got the right to be angry. Yeah, you know, there was nothing. I've, wasn't abused. I wasn't mistreated. I was always popular. I got along with people. It's just um, for that stage, probably from fourteen to maybe seventeen, yep. there was something inside me that I could not figure out and get out. And wow! I actually see it in other kids, like yeah, wow. kids that come to my gym, and I, I sympathise with them. In it's annoying when you hear they've done stupid shit, yeah. but then I think, well, that was me. Yeah, just yeah, yeah. We stole cars. We broke into houses. We done. I, I probably had a good, um, a good alliance with another guy who was uh, from a rough, not a rough family, but a, a very dysfunctional family. So um, when he suggested let's steal that car, I was like, yeah, of course, let's go. Yeah, steal a car. Well, let's break into that house. Yeah, of course. You know, no questions asked. And and uh, I hung with him for quite a few years, and until we both of us realised that we were good. Not good for each other. So. Yeah, fuck. <laughs> and so would your, um, would your training have sorted you out, do you think, a little bit? Like getting into the martial arts, like... Yeah. Yeah. The martial I've heard arts. that a bunch. Like tons of people uh, as yeah. young kids got into martial arts and then they seemed to like at least have that outlet and yeah. then it was gone. So I tried surfing. I tried skating, um, BMX riding. I tried lots of stuff. No rollerblading? <laughs> I may have rolled. Rollerblades weren't around when I was a kid. They were four Good wheels. They were proper skates. You, know? <laughs> you could take them off and put them on your skateboard. No, um, so I did try some other stuff and some – I always played football, which was uh, – I used to love football, mm. AFL football. But um, I tried these other sports. But then when Muay Thai come to town, it's, I, w- I wasn't old enough. You had to be 18 to do it. And I think I was only 16 or 17, something mm. around there. So I remember starting uh, Zendokai Karate, 
And that's what this instructor um, that's, you know, my, ended up being my fire coach, I started under him. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, he recognised my anger straight up. He said, <laughs> you're angry. That's that's it. And um, and he used that a lot against me when I first started. And I was, fucking, that made me even more angry, you know. Wow, yeah. But it was very addictive. So I stuck at it. I love the... the um, Trying to use other people's anger against them mm. sort of mm. made me realise, yeah, that's what I'm doing. So maybe I need to back off that bit, you know. Oh, that's so interesting. That's cool that you had enough like wherewithal to see that, to see other people's anger and realise that you could actually use it against them. Yeah, yeah. Once, uh, I, I, you know, like I said, that, that trainer that I had, the, the martial arts, he was fantastic at martial arts. Mm. And he used to make me sort of look inside myself a bit. And he was great in that aspect. And I used to really – now, years later, I really, really appreciate that. That's Shit, cause yeah. Because that could inspire I had, Thank God I hadn't found drugs. Oh, yeah, man. just alcohol. That was my drug. It was easy to get a hold of back then, you know. But uh, a few of my friends uh, from school days, and they had found the drugs. And I just, I just never got into it. Yeah, uh, that is good, yeah, man. That's lucky. I think it could have been a lot worse for me. <laughs> Fuck. I know that's an interesting thing that um that idea of using somebody's anger against them. I really like that. Like yeah. and and what's really cool about that is this like I always use this description when I'm teaching people, like to have them have a look at themselves or record them for just a little bit so that because if you can't see why you're doing it wrong, yeah. it's hard for you to make any changes. You know, like, it, yeah. I could sit there and tell somebody all day, turn your hip over until they actually see what it looks like properly and then what, they, what they're doing. It's really hard not to. But at the same time, anytime I've even myself have seen recordings of myself doing things and yeah. I'm like, fuck, yeah. it's so horrible yeah, to watch, it is. isn't it? Because you have to really like come to terms with where you're at yeah well i had a uh, a guy a friend of mine that we were living with brian Macquarie, and uh brian said oh, you need to come and work security at the pub this is when i was 20 probably still a bit angry still still into martial arts and enjoying it and getting into the muay thai and, and um but still drinking way way too much and, mm. and mucking up and he said you need to come and work security and and like what you just said he said so you can see how much of a fuckwit you're being Brad, come and watch. Oh, what a people. good friend! Yeah. yeah, well, he turned out he was a really good friend. Yeah, Brian. Oh. Um, so I did. I did. I got my security license and um, started work. I was working inside a pub at age twenty, and um, dealing with big drunken football players. And and uh, again, being a small town, you sort of knew who was who. Mm. So you knew who to keep an eye out for and things like that. And um, yeah, that that led on to sort of eight years of working security, which was absolute life game changer for me. Like wow. seeing other people drunk, oh, and gosh. then just you were dry sober, <laughs> yeah. and you think, oh fuck, I hope I'm not like that. But mm. then I realised, yeah, I am like that. I'm actually worse than a lot of these oh, guys. Oh yeah. So we, I used to work uh, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday nights, and then on Sunday I would just get shit faced and. Everyone else had to pay for my shit post. <laughs> Everyone else that I've seen paid for it in one way or another, whether it was me ruining the party that we're at or uh. um, just being a dick at the pub, you know, because there was no security on the and the bar staff having to kick me out and... Yeah, oh, so man. That was, that was pretty wild. That's so <laughs> funny. Well, that is good. I mean, that like, I, I'd say that's the exact same thing happened to me. We, when you have that, finally you have an external look at yourself. And seeing when now, obviously, being sober for two years, when I 
anytime I'm around drunk people, it's not that I even am mad at them anymore. Like I used to be straight away, just be like, you fucking idiot. I can't do it. And I had to just distance myself because I couldn't take it. But there is something really gross about being on a different level to somebody else. And you just look at them. You really do feel pure superior. And you just look at these animals like what fucking what other animal on this earth would willingly poison themselves to make a dick of themselves and then wake up and do it again the next day. And then then wake up and blame the alcohol. Yes. It's not the alcohol's fault. You're a fucking dick. It's just the alcohol made it worse. Yeah, man. Yeah, I I do hear on that one. And it took me a long time. Like Alcohol has been a big part of my life for a long time. But now, um, especially now I've got kids, I'm Mm. well in control. I love a drink. I still, I don't hold it against anyone for having a drink. And Mm -hmm. it's great. Um, But I just know how to control it now so instead of it controlling me you know yeah man well and you probably so you thought you sort of had something to prove for some period of time and then realized like oh shit i'm not proving anything to anybody i'm just being a dick yeah i was alienating myself that's all i did in a a town where um you know it's a small town you you move in small circles Mm. that circle just got smaller and smaller because less people they're like fuck you i'm not hanging out with you dude you know you're too much trouble you know so wow Come to a point, and then almost it was uh, time to move on. Hence, I moved to the Gold Coast. <laughs> You're <laughs> like, well, I'm going to tear up a different <laughs> I'm town. Fuck it up. <laughs> yeah. It'd have been right at home here. This place is a fucking mess. Well, it was funny because um, uh, I'd had one experience in my life with drugs in Warrnambool, and uh, and uh, that was it. I never. I thought, oh, well, that's it. Mm. Big deal. What what drugs? I took a uh, ecstasy. Oh, yeah, and uh, had a great night. Fucking awesome. And then I come down so hard, so hard on the other end. I was a mess. I was just – and I went to see my doctor at the time and said, dude, I I think something's wrong with me. This is what I've done. And and the doctor was so cool the way he explained it to me. And he said, yeah, you're just on a downer. And Mm. Anyway, um, so I never touched it again. I didn't – it just didn't do it for me. Yeah, that come down will put you off for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't want to hit that again. (laughs) Moved to the Gold Coast and boom. (laughs) Then I found cocaine and that was like fucking awesome because <laughs> it was free and it was heaps of it. And oh, for, um, Was that when you were living in that house? With yeah, everyone? yeah. So we, I, I moved into a house full of fighters that were very well known on the Gold Coast and um, to a point that they were so well known that it made me well known. So wow. I, I could go out by myself or with friends from back home and people would recognise me. Oh, my God. We'd have free drinks, free entry to all the clubs, you know, and, of course, free cocaine. And it was just unbelievable. For, for, <laughs> it was a lifestyle that um, I'm sure people make movies about that shit, but yeah, we, we did it, I only did it for probably four years where we really lived it up and it was, it was great. I blew all my cash because, you know, when I couldn't get cocaine for free, I went and bought it for me or pills <laughs> or... Um, and you guys were working at the restaurant, were you? Or what was the goal? Oh there? no, we used to we used to help a couple of restaurants out. They mm. used to help us. They used to sponsor us. So we used to go there and get a free feed, and then basically work in the restaurant. That yeah. sort of stuff. But it was it was mainly the boxing and the Muay Thai uh, contacts that were getting us to draw, and the big bikey influence. On oh my god! Gold Coast back then days, and with two different gangs, but all both all involved in the fight game. They all wanted to know. Be on the side of the champ, so to speak. Yeah. Well, I was lucky and very blessed that I was training the champs. So, yeah, yeah. You know, they. Uh, and this, so this is when you started moving into fight training from being a fighter yourself. Yeah, yeah. So I'd sort of, I'd sort of stopped fighting um, seriously before I moved to the Gold Coast. I was just training fighters, and then a friend of mine was up here and said, "Oh, there's Jim up here looking for a pad holder trainer slash trainer." Yeah. And I was 
absolutely just floating in town doing nothing and thought, yeah, now's a good time to get out of town. <laughs> so I moved to the Gold Coast. I was actually uh, – I was heading to France. I was uh, a lead light. I'm a glazier by trade, but I, I did lead lighting, stained glass oh, yeah. windows, and um, my mum is a Martin from, from France. So I was planning to move to France because the kickboxing scene was good. I could do lead light and all that sort of stuff. But um, – yeah, I moved to the Gold Coast, just thought I'd help them out for a little bit. And I'm still here 20 years later. Right. So, yeah. And you trained, so this was obviously like your biggest, the person that you trained for most of that time was Nathan Corbett. Um, yeah, John Wayne Parr, first up. Yeah. Uh, Nathan Corbett. There was a, at that time, the Boonchu gym was a uh, really powerhouse gym. Like, mm. I would say the strongest in the country, you know. It was, cool. uh, they had their own promotions, they had, um, uh, good sponsors. They uh, put on enormous shows, like, and you had guys like Nathan Corbett and Shannon Forrester and John Wayne Parr. Um, Paul Briggs was there boxing. Nathan Briggs was there. The, the, the name Brad Ed, it went on and on. Adam Hullahan. There was a really strong gym of fighters. So, all I did for the first twelve months of living here was just train, sleep, eat, train, sleep, eat, say, just repeat right. over and over. And we were doing that. We lived in a house. There was a, a three-bedroom apartment that um, one of the sponsors from the gym had rented, and at one stage there was twelve fighters living in there. <laughs> oh my god! Three bed- and we were sleeping on like double beds, one on the end of the bed or on the floor. It didn't matter because um, most of us had trained in Thailand, so we knew what how tough it can be over there. So we had it pretty easy. Yeah. Well. And the beauty of it was, you'd wake in the morning, we'd run eight to ten k's, go to the gym and train go to the restaurant, have a feed, help them set up for the morning, go back home, have a sleep, wake up, run, train, <laughs> go back to sleep. And the days just went on and on. We trained every day. Right. We never missed a day, you know. So we never had time off. We never had – even if uh, you just fought, we'd still train the next day. Wow. Like yeah. Really? So it was good. It was really good. The guys were tough and they were all winning big fights and – um. Then I started holding pads for Paul Briggs, the boxer, as, as he wasn't Muay Thai at that stage. He was just boxing. So that opened up a whole new corridor as well. It was quite good. Yeah. yeah. What was um what was it that about fight training that you wanted to do? Like why did you go from that? Why did you even take up that opportunity? Was it just fun to be a part of it? Yeah, it was. I, I think um, at some point, and I, I couldn't put a date on it, but at some point I realised that I do like helping people. I do, like I, I had a good life myself and even though I was a bit of a brat and, and, and um, carried on like a dick, mm. I had nothing wrong with me. Yeah, like yeah. Like I said, I was never abused. I was never mistreated. I was always treated really well. Mm. But I always found myself hanging out with people that were. Mm. My best mate Jamal who, who, in the day, he, like his dad was a raging alcoholic and used to you know, be quite violent. So Jamal would come and stay at our place. Then as I got older, there was another guy... Oh, God, his name blank. Anyway, it doesn't matter for the crowd listening. They're not going <laughs> to know who I mean. But it was exactly the same thing, bad family atmosphere. So he used to come and hang out with me a lot. Um, and I always found myself in some way or form helping people and it made me feel good. Yeah. So the boxing in that way and the Muay Thai was sort of the same. Yeah. Um, I had a role to play, which was help people get fit. Um, and uh, I was never the best fighter by any means. But I'm, I'm confident in saying I was a way better trainer than I was a fighter. Yeah. So I could help people and um, sort of read into them um, pretty well. <clears throat> Excuse me. Read into them pretty well at where they were at mentally. Yeah. 
once they walked into the gym, you know. I, got, I, get, I get a good feel off people's vibe or even they look in their eyes as soon as I meet them where they're at. You know? Yeah, man. So. I, I would say that's one of your, your probably your natural talents that comes in. Like of, of anything of the, their like distinguishing features about you is that you are a really good read of people straight away. You have a really good idea about what they're doing, what they're up to and where their brain's at. Yeah, I do. I, I, that, that is a sense that I've got. I very rarely, very rarely, I have got it wrong in the past, but I very rarely get it wrong. I can mm. tell where people are. And probably because the other thing is I don't judge people. I don't. Give yeah, a fuck no, what you've not. done. Yeah. Good or bad, it doesn't matter. Mm. People do bad shit, people do good shit. And it, it doesn't make you a better person or a worse person, you know. Yeah. I don't like excuses for what you've done, but I don't care what you've done. Either. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Taking responsibility. That seems to always be the theme on like every single podcast I've done and talking to people about how they've got to uh, got over their own doubts or got through limits that they thought they were going to break or whatever. It is that it always comes back to taking responsibility for yourself and being honest, man. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, it's nothing's worse than having someone just stare at you and lie. Bullshit. Like, what the fuck? I think the other thing with with taking responsibility and stuff like that, if there's one word in the dictionary that I cannot understand, I still haven't got my head around, is the word because. Yeah. (laughs) I did this because, or, uh, you know, I want to do this because. Fuck because. Yeah. Tell me what the word because means. Mm. What You've done it, not because this was going to happen or that was happening. You've just done it. Just put a full stop at the end of that. Yeah. Yeah, Let, and then make the change forward. That's right. Don't yeah. make an excuse why you did it. Mm. Well, don't even sometimes, I don't know, it gets a bit weird for me, but even the reason people do shit, like I, I, if I hear another person say I'm doing it to prove all the doubters wrong. <laughs> it's like you're the one doubting. You're the only doubter. Who what cares? Happens, what happens if those doubters actually don't give a fuck? Yes, they what, literally don't. Right. You can't do anything because you're not proving anyone wrong. Yeah, do shit because you want to do shit. Don't do shit because you're trying to prove someone wrong or because this or because that. It's a yeah. word that really sticks on the end of my tongue. I can't – I try not to use it myself. Yeah, yeah. And when people start saying this happened because of this, it's usually leading down the path of an excuse. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Unless and, – and I think there is one way that I that I think there's value in this and that is like – Reviewing why you think something happened, you know, so something happened and you need to make sense of that thing in order to move past it. So working on different, I guess, theories and either way, at the end of the day, you have to know that they're all theories. But I think there is definitely value in like having a look at something and being like, fuck, is that why I did that? Mm. Did I do that because I th- I think this way? Well, then I need to adjust the way I'm thinking. What are you doing? That's you right. You know, that thing. Exactly right. Because if you don't have enough self-awareness to to look at why you're doing what you're doing, then you are going to end up just fucking repeating those same yes. mistakes, yeah. not listening to yourself. It's, it's never a mistake really the first time around. But if you do the same thing again, mm-hmm. then it becomes a mistake and it's a really stupid mistake. Yeah. Um, if you haven't looked at why that happened or how it turned out or did it turn out for the best reason, and I suppose you go deeper into that too, sometimes bad shit happens to make you stronger or better. Yes. So bad shit is part of your life. Right. How are you going to deal? Don't wish for a life with no bad. I know because what I th- I think about this all the time. Like that we're always looking for like oh it'll be better when it'll be yeah. better soon that that's going to be better and then it's like wait a second every minute you're saying that you're not alive. You know what I mean? You're literally, it's like you're in a dream, asleep, wishing that tomorrow will happen. That's and right. every day you do that, you, you could have been asleep all day long today because you weren't there today. That's right. 
So again, you, that sort of comes under that bracket of that word because you know, I, you know, I, my business would have been better, but because of the current financial situation, mm. or my relationship would have been better, but because I didn't have the time to do it. Fucking bullshit. Mm-hmm. That's bullshit. I, I, I don't know. That's just me. I don't, hopefully the listeners out there are thinking the same <laughs> too. But the word because it 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 start it opens a little doorway to excuses. Yeah. Yeah, That's I mean, what it starts, yeah? Yeah. So uh, if you can drop the because or, or the blame or when this is better or when the weather's better, we'll do this. or we'll do that. Mm. Like, oh, I run on the beach in the rain. I love it. Who yeah. cares? You know, you don't have to wait until the sun comes out or because you might catch a cold or mm. fuck. Yeah. Like, Either you will or you won't. And you it ex- absolutely. Right. And that's an interesting thing. Like, have you ever heard of the, like the concept of the nocebo effect? Obviously, you would have heard of the placebo, placebo. effect. So um, these... Like the placebo effect is that obviously something you think has happened because you've basically created inside your head. Yes. Someone told you to take these pills. They could be made of nothing. They could be made of just sugar. Yep. And then you take them and then you have this like, right. yeah, this effect of it. Um, this guy on a recent pod- podcast, I've been going on and on about this sleep podcast. You should listen to it too. Okay. It's great. It's a Joe Rogan podcast with this guy who's a sleep researcher. But he said that, um, so Joe was like, what do you say to people who take melatonin at night? And he's like, if you're taking it and it helps you sleep, keep taking it. But I'll tell you what, it's not doing anything yeah, for right. you. It's just your brain. But if you've got this attachment to a thing doing a, a thing for you and then you stop taking those and then you're like, oh, no, I can't sleep. Yeah. Yeah. You're better off getting a good night's sleep and just believing that the pills are working yeah. for you. Okay. And I don't think at any point it's healthy to like believe that something's working for you or not. But the nocebo effect is the opposite, that you believe that something bad is going to happen, that negative things will come, and you are just constantly creating it. So it's constantly, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And so like if you have this thing, like if I do that, I'm going to get a cold, and you live your life in this like fear state of always worrying about things, you are constantly going to be creating that for yourself. And I don't mean this in that weird the spirit or the secret kind of way. I mean, literally, that's you all you can see. Yeah. So that's what you're going to filter down and that's what you're going to absorb. Yeah, I, I, I get that. My, my mum, God love her, but um, she definitely is always worried about the negative side of mm. things. Everything is negative. I scratch my neck. What's that? Is that a sunspot? That's cancer. Oh, my God. <laughs> You've got cancer. <laughs> yeah. No, mum, I've got an itchy neck because I haven't <laughs> shaved properly or something stupid, you know. Like, um, the... Probably, uh, you know, when I did move up here to Queensland, it was, was a big breakaway from my family where it was very comfortable, a great family and everything like that. So moving up here was a big break that I had to realise that you do shit for yourself yeah. to make yourself better or whatever the case may be. But you do it for yourself. And if it fucks up, that's because you did it. Yes. Not yes. because someone else did it or mm. because... Again, the, the the world, the stars didn't align. It's because you did it. What do you think made you realise that? Do you know? Like were there any particular po- points? Um, no, I don't, I don't put it down to a point, but I, I did know that I needed something in my life to change. That was mm. – I was drifting. I was happy, but I was not doing anything really um, productive mm. and um, – I had read a couple of books. I, d- I honestly don't read many books. I'm not a great reader. But one of the books that I did read was talking about success and, and the levels of success, what people see as success. And uh, the way I read the book was you have an image of what success looks like. So if you don't allow yourself to get to that level, you'll always chase it, mm. which will make you unhappy because you never reach it. Mm. I'm not saying lower your eyes or lower your expectations. 
but realise when you are hitting it that that is a success. So for me, in that aspect, training fighters, when they won fights, that was success. Yeah, yeah. For me, that was great. When they lost fights, they'd lost the fight. Yeah, big deal. Fucking two years down the track, no one's going to care. But Mm. success was... Those guys had improved and they, and they were feeling good and they, they were like, fuck it, I'm going to train harder and win the next one. Yeah, yeah. So for me, I sort of got success out of other people's wins mm. and, and maybe that's what helped me when, uh, when I was up here because I did get a bit lonely at first but sort of involving myself in that gym atmosphere so much mm. and watching those guys succeed was very successful for me. I yeah, loved man. As a coach. And, and you never coach. felt like you wanted to get your hand raised like when you walked in there and you see them get a belt or anything. Did you ever get that feeling like, fuck, that I should have been me? Or No, no, I didn't even, uh, I didn't even get off on um, uh, like um, – over the years when you train champions, you've always got these hangers-on guys, right? They're, Ugh, they're, they're always there. They're, they're fucking in, <laughs> and they're in every photo and they're, they turn up when the camera's there, you know? Like, Yuck, man. That's it. My life, I was not all about that. I enjoy the photos I got with my promoters, um, fighters, but it wasn't for me um, I wanted my head in the paper beside those guys or anything yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, I just enjoyed seeing those guys achieve. And, yeah. and big time achieve, you know. We I trained some guys that went on to win multiple world titles, and yeah, man. I mean, it's a, it was a huge deal at the time. It's already a couple of years down the track, and I realised that it wasn't the biggest thing in life. Like, it's <laughs> not. I got more to to achieve and more to yeah. get. It wasn't the biggest thing, like. But at the time, it was fucking everything. It was so good, you know. Like, I mean, Nathan's an eleven time world champion. And That's we travelled the world with that insane. shit. Like, we went everywhere. We've been so many cool places, and All that right. is the experience. Winning the Winning the fights and that, that's more for Nathan. That's great for him. Mm-hmm. I totally, um, I love that for him. It gave him guidance. Now he can make a career off the fact that he was 11-time world champion. Mm. I was sort of making a career off him being a great champion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the trips that we had and the stuff that we did was just unreal. Just drinking coffee in Switzerland with rugs wrapped around us because it was so freaking cold. <laughs> they actually gave you a coffee and a rug to sit outside, you know, <laughs> shit really? like that. I mean, it was, it was unreal. In Jamaica we went and um, we stayed at a five-star hotel and you swam in the beach and they had it all caged off so that no locals could swim in there and all this sort oh, of stuff. Wow. Just Oh, we stayed in uh, Vegas at the MGM Grand in a two-level apartment that was just unbelievable, you know. Like we had so many cool experiences and it was all off the back of him, his success, you know. So for me that was – to see him doing that was awesome. um, A lot of fight trainers will walk to the ring with their fighter, like behind him. I used to run out to ringside because I used to love watching him come down the walkway. Oh, so he'd yeah, walk cool. down by himself. I, I, like, I'm a fan of the sport. So yeah, yeah. I wanted to get down there amongst the crowd and, and watch him walk down. It was really cool. So oh, I used to love doing that. That is an insane amount of experience going through that kind of shit. Yeah, like, it was good. It was it was really good. Like And seeing the backstage stuff that goes on and everyone thinks, you know, they when you sit on a table or you, you're in your chair and you're having a few drinks with your friends and you watch the fights, it's, it's a build-up towards that main event. And out the back, we're just watching TV. Yeah. You know, like everyone else is getting pumped up and fired up and that. And we're like hand wraps on, feet crossed up on a table, you know, like just chilling out. And then obviously you warm up and and get in the zone before you go out. But you're normally in a dingy little hold somewhere where um, only six people can fit in and and it's cold (laughs) and, you know, you can hear this noise and then you're like, oh, we're going out there soon, you know. Yeah. But... uh, 
I know it's funny, like when we were just at, at that um, tag team show that I fought on last year, it was the first like good, big, um, nice promotion. Everything looked real clean and nice out the front. Yeah. We were up two stories the in the back room. of an industrial <laughs> kitchen to get ready. And yeah, I mean, that, like your fight experience, the amount of experience that you've had obviously doing that, it radiates off of you. I was saying this to everybody after you came to that fight show and you were helping me out the back. Um, we had get my hands taped up and stuff and yeah. just, and just honestly, just sitting next to you just relaxes me. Yeah. Like, well, Cause it's just like, I, I, you've, it's just business as usual. And I'm yeah. always got that pre-fight stuff and I'm, I'm getting smaller. I feel like, ev- I feel like the whole world like zooms in up yeah. to that moment, you know, like all of your distractions, everything that matters in life doesn't exist anymore for on fight day. And it just slowly tunnels in until that moment where you got to walk through the ring. I, uh, I got to train with, uh, Rod Waterhouse when I was holding, uh, pads for Paul Briggs and Rod, Rod Waterhouse is another guy I don't think he ever actually boxed but he was a good boxing trainer you know mm. you don't have to be a good boxer to be a good boxing trainer anyway uh, I'd already had a lot of experience with Muay Thai and and a bit with boxing and that but this guy he, he taught me so much about human sort of needs and wants and stuff and he said the boxer is normally 10 times the normal person they want more they need more because most boxers have a pretty fucked up story to tell. You know, yeah. there's something bad happened, you know, that makes them into a good boxer. Um, one of the th- things he did say about when you put your fighter in the ring, he said, all your work's done. He said, if you're worried about, oh, she's, I hope he's um, blocking's okay or he's, he's mm. ducking, it's too late. You've, you've missed the boat, you know, it's yeah, gone. Yeah. A week before they get in the ring, your training finishes. Mm. It's it's completely over. The, the physical side is over and it's all mental from there forward. Wow. And that radiated with me because um, never in a, in a boxing fight or Muay Thai fight did I ever yell at people in the corner. I shouldn't say never. Rarely did I yell at someone unless they had to snap out of a certain zone. But yeah. I was always calm and I talked to them and made sure they talked back to me because at the end of the day, the fighter, and, and this is probably from fight experience, is that it's such a whirlwind getting mm. in there, it's like you're standing in the middle of a tornado and you've got 30 seconds to talk. Yeah, yeah. Then they go back in, into the tornado. So you don't want to waste time with oh, do this spin kick and, and flip over and do a Superman punch <laughs> and then the guy's looking at you like, what the fuck is that? You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's just talk, basic talk. So that, that starts in the change room. Mm. Low, melatonin sort of basic talk just, just to keep everyone calm and relaxed and mm. – they're already thinking enough things in their head, so they don't need me barking ten orders at them at the same time. So yeah, and a lot of times, like when somebody brings in, at least for me, I don't know because it's my my nature is I'm a little bit more sensitive type. But like when somebody starts talking, oh yeah, you're gonna fuck them up, you yeah. kill them, you know, yeah. all that like hypey kind of, or people even outside. And this is, I mean, a good thing about us is that we always are like, all right, once you're in with your trainer, you're just talking to your trainer. That's like right. nobody else yeah. should be talking to you. But because, you know, people are like, oh, you're getting fired up, yeah. you're getting pumped. And you're just like, no, I, the last thing I need is to amplify my nerves right yeah. now or my excitement or anything. The yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, what all I need to do is just focus, slow yeah. down, focus, slow down and focus. I think everyone, like, I know everyone means well. And uh, like, how you feeling, man? How yeah. you feeling? Fuck, if I told you how I was feeling, dude, you'd be disappointed. I'm <laughs> yeah. so relaxed right now, you know, like I, I could lay down and sleep. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, the how you feeling, it, 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 it's great to have support, and, but then you're also a little bit edgy by the time you go to your fire. Sure, yeah. So you don't yeah. really want to talk to those people and answer pretty lame questions, you know, oh. like all those supporters out there in Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mean well, we get that. But it, it can be um, – 
a distraction in, in, in a lot of ways. So hence why a lot of fires, fighters just retire backstage and, and that's where they hang for the majority of the fight show. Yeah. Afterwards they come out and let their hair down because as much as family and family are probably the worst is they mean well but you could just tell how nervous they are. They're shitting mm. themselves for Fuck you. It. Yeah. Whereas you're cold like, you know, ice. You're like, well, I'm ready to do this. I've... Well, you've committed at that yeah. point. I mean, there's no point. Like, uh, you, there is no point in having any extra nerves or fear. No. Or, you know, when you watch somebody who cares about you looking at you nervous and you're like, fuck, you're worried about me. Now I should be worried about yeah, me. But yeah. I'm not trying to be nervous That's about no, me. I'm actually worried about you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whereas exactly. I'm calm. I'm ready to go and, and do this thing. But uh... And you were saying to me one time, um, I don't remember what show it was because I, I was feeling nervous and you, you said... Um, You'd be insane if you weren't nervous. No, you know, yeah. you'd be crazy if you weren't. So you, what you're doing, what you're feeling right now, use it. You're fine. And no. you said to me that um, Nathan couldn't even talk to people before no, he fought. He was, he was um, and he was a murderer. Like he, he yeah, just, yeah, he was on another level. That guy, but strapping his hands up, I couldn't get the tape to stick to his hands because he was sweating so much. Like I used to have to dry his hands off to yeah. do, and, the, and there used to rattle. Like he was in a on the back of a wagon getting towed by horses. <laughs> rattling, and he was. Um, you know, he never used to speak, though, either. That was a good thing. I think he just kept it inside and um, let it build up. And like I said, we'd be sitting with our feet up on, on the mm. back. Like people would honestly be disappointed if they come in our change room before <laughs> his fight because it was so relaxed. It was yeah. just – we didn't have music blaring. We didn't have anything. Um, a, a good pommy mate, um, Dave Adams, a real good guy, typical geezer, wasn't he? Like, you know, <laughs> good accent on him and, and everything. Used to come backstage and help fire us up, you know, like in the big events. He'd fucking get up, I'm Nathan, you know, like really get into it. And it was so cool because it was different for us because we never used to do that. Yeah, he'd done that wow. half a dozen times for us, and um, <laughs> it worked. It, it, it was a good, it was a good vibe. And we used to let a lot of people come backstage and watch him do his pads because it was very intense. Yeah, wow. So we'd flip from sitting down, getting your hands strapped up. He'd have a towel over his head, not looking at anyone, so he didn't have to talk to anyone or, or do his thing. Then unleash the beast, take the towel off, put the gloves on him. As soon as we put those gloves on, he, he, you know, like his eyes would sink to the back of his head. And wow. and then he'd start doing the pads and the pads were intense. And we used to bring out, I remember, the Titans Football Club or um, I think it was the Blaze basketball team and stuff like that on the Gold Coast. And they were just a bunch of big, burly, tough-looking footballers and they were standing in line like they were getting in trouble at, by the school principal. They were just wow. too afraid to move because of the intensity in the room. And and you Fuck. could see these guys getting off on it. Like they loved it because they're sportsmen also. Yeah, know, they're sports people. So that was um, – I used to love that bit and, and um, it was painful, you know, that he'd hit those pads hard and oh my God. fully – It broke your arm once, didn't it? Yeah, oh, yeah, that was in training, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I've had a few broken bones from training. But um, the just the intensity was uh, – it was something – it was something that I'll probably cherish for the rest of my life was more than the fight because I was so confident in the way forward. Mm. I knew he'd win. I was yeah. never doubting that on any fight. But the intensity in the change room 10 minutes before we went out was something that will stick with me. I haven't talked about it now. It takes me back. You know, like it was wow. unbelievable. It was so intense and it was uh, um, – what would you call it? testosterone fueled, and I felt like a fucking I felt like a warrior too, you know. Yeah, like wow. we were getting this beast that's going to go out in front of us, put him out in front, and uh, <laughs> that was cool. That was really cool. That was uh, that was one of those memories that will stick with me forever. Yeah, yeah. There, it's almost it's so hard to describe the feeling of intensity, and I can't imagine it at that level. Like I mean, on an individual level, like just 
every, you know, that kind of relationship that you developed with your trainer, I know as a fighter to a trainer and vice versa, that it, like just the way that we feel about you guys, just because we know that you've got us there. You, you, it's almost like we create that space together as the day gets closer to fight day. It, the space, the circle of your awareness gets smaller yeah. and you guys oh, are the exactly. only thing that exists yeah. in there. And you're yeah. like our tether to the real world. And after it, I mean, there's an intimacy there that's Almost impossible to describe. Oh, definitely. We, you, you know, and when you travel away with fighters, that becomes even more so because it oh, might be wow. just you and your trainer. Yeah. Or it was, it was me and my fighter. That was um, the intensity was was full on because you rely on each other for everything. Then. Yeah. Like you wow. sit on a plane and and uh, you go to Europe and it might take you twenty four hours or whatever to get there. Well, it's just you and him. Yeah. And then you get there and you're waiting for someone to pick you up and take you somewhere and, and do something and everything's done together, you know, like wow. the only time you separate is when you go to your own room. And you're such a piece of shit in that last week because <laughs> you're right. cutting weight and you can't you eat. <laughs> so yeah, everything much. seems like a hassle. Like it, it, and I mean, that's what your trainer's job is to do is, is to shield you from that bullshit, you know. Like yeah. A couple of times, um, there was one time that Nathan uh, booked into his room and, and I booked into my room and uh, this was a life lesson that I learned. And someone had dropped off, delivered some stuff to his room. So people used to ring his room, uh, media and shit like that. Oh. So we'd take the phone off the hook and anyone dropped like a dildo and some vass and something and said, oh, this guy's going to fuck you real hard. Get ready for it. Oh, I'll listen yuck. to him. And he was so offended because he, he's, he's a very in, intense person. He was he knocked on my door and he was like this little kid bringing a puppy that had just been run over. And he's, he's like, look at this. This was just delivered to my fucking room. And from that day forward, what we used to do is we'd book into the rooms and then in the elevator just swap keys. Ah, yeah. So right. he'd go to my room, I'd go to his room. People would ring from home, you know, I want to speak to Nathan Corbett. And they'd ring and it might be his sister or his mum or what. It could be anyone. And I'd say, well, is it really important? You know, oh, I just want to wish him good luck. Yeah, right, I'll do that. Yeah, yeah, you know? I'll do it for you. Um, so that was, yeah, that was a lesson learned. But I, I seen the funny side of trying to control my laughter when he got given <laughs> this box of stuff. And Nathan was, was so Was it a offended. good dildo at least? Uh, I'm not a real expert on dildos. I've sort of... <laughs> Yeah, but it. Um, what do you guys do with it? Uh, can we talk about that on another? Fuck, <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly don't remember. But I do, I do remember trying to contain my laughter and act serious. Like I was like, he, this guy's deeply offended. Like he's yeah, yeah. really oh, offended, and I'm like, fucking, that's the funniest thing I've seen in ages. That is and, so uh, gross. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a life experience for me. But um, yeah. that's funny, man. Like. Um, you know, you, talk, you were talking a little while ago about the hangers-on, like that there are people. I can imagine that. I mean, somebody with that much power, that much like intensity around them and all this big hype and everything. And even a Muay Thai fighter, like that's a funny thing. Nathan Corbett's a fucking legend mm. in Muay Thai. But even then, the average person doesn't know who he is, which is insane to me because of what he's done. And 11, 11 world championships mm. is just fucking stupid. But um, so when what would you say it is about the nature of the type of hangers-on that just want to be a part of that but have nothing to offer themselves? Or like how would you – like I guess how would you differentiate between somebody who's not a hanger-on, who's around the process, and someone yeah. who is? Well, the, the hangers-on, the bit, I mean you don't know until afterwards, but as soon mm. as you finish, they're gone. Yeah, well, there's that definitely. That's a big – I mean the other thing is – like for the fight game especially, and this goes for any fight game and um, it's it's been proven time and time again to be true, is people like the power of a fighter. 
Yeah. They generate power. Like they, they have an aura of power around them, so to speak. So if you're a businessman or you're something, you want that power that that guy's got. Mm. So like they say, hang out with people you want to be like. Right. You know, don't flock with the seagulls when you can soar with eagles sort of thing. Um, so you do get a lot of business type people that want to build off the back of that. Yeah. But unfortunately, well. what happens is they, they talk so much bullshit about, oh, <laughs> let's use Nathan as his name. Nathan, you should do this T-shirt deal and I'll back you all the way and we'll make millions of dollars off it. And, and for a fighter, you know, especially at the start, you make fuck all money. So... Mm. When someone starts waving dollars in front of you, you start to listen. Think, hey, this is how this is, could be my way out. You know, this could yeah. be my retirement fund. Um, for for people that don't know, like, there's no superannuation in boxing no. or competitive sports. When, when the day you finish, you're done. That's it. Your income stops. You've mm. got no income when you stop fighting. So, yeah. when you can see another way of making some money, it's really attractive to you because mm. that's your job. I mean, Nathan's never worked. Yeah, wow. He's been a Muay Thai fighter. He left school to be a Muay Thai fighter and that's all he's been. That's that's oh. So he, the rest of his life, he's a Muay Thai fighter. So yeah. when you see these opportunities come up or what perceived opportunities, um, they look really attractive and, and yeah. sort of then you start hanging out with these guys and, like I said, believing their bullshit. I was lucky enough that I wasn't ever presented with any of those bullshit opportunities. So that was water off a duck's back for me. I, I, I could listen to these guys talking to him and thinking, that's not true. You're not going to do that. <laughs> yeah. Who would fucking do that? Why would you do that? You know. When you also have that really great sense, I mean, this uh, sense about you probably since you were young, that you can tell people. Oh, like, I mean, it's ridiculous. Radar. You have got a yeah. very good bullshit good radar. Good bullshit radar. And um, I've never really hung out with people that bullshit a lot. Once, mm. once they do, I figure it out. And, uh, okay. That's cool. That's his thing. He's got to do that. Occasionally I get fooled. I got fooled recently. <laughs> but, you know. What it, happened? Oh, one of the kids that I train, one of the girls I train, her father was a a, um, a very business astute type of guy, you know. Like yeah, he yeah. Had deals up his sleeve and things go, you know, life was so grand. And then one night it just fucking unraveled in front of me and I was like, wow. Oh, no. What the yeah. fuck? And then his wife told me about all this bullshit and. Then he turned because I sort of said to her, "Well, how long have you put up with this?" And then she realised that it was time to break away from him. Then he turned all his anger to me, and oh, still fuck. to this day, wow. But because true to bullshit art form, all he ever does is keyboard warrior shit, and he's had the opportunity <laughs> to do stuff for him, and he's turned the other way, you know, like yeah, I yeah. But uh, I could see that. Um, but I have got a good bullshit radar, and I don't let a lot of people inside my circle once they start flinging that stuff around. It's mm. sort of. I'm not impressed by it and I, I just don't need it in my life. I'm There's something real creepy about somebody who needs something from you and that they're being dishonest in order to get it. You know, like when uh, – if you need something and you need some help and you just have the humility or whatever to just speak ask. and try and ask. Yeah. I know it's – and it's a weird thing, but nobody is prepared to ask for help. Not so much these days. Not and the, so much. And no. we have this weird nature of like going roundabout ways to get what we want when really – the direct path is the easiest path. Like, really, you just do need to put it out there and just say. Even, I mean, I get I get weird in situations where I need help because I'm. I think like, oh no, I need to get this shit together myself, and mm-hmm. I need to do it. But um, when you want something and you're not prepared to ask for it outright, like, what the fuck are you doing? There's a real weakness in that. Yeah, there I is. Think. There is. Uh, the, probably the other thing too. Oh, well, I've noticed, especially in the last fifteen years, is. Um, when you're talking about people asking for help, I mean, that's what 
martial arts and Muay Thai and, and, and boxing does for people. It helps them, right? So mm. if they're prepared to come along and take you build that relationship with people and it's much easier to ask them, hey, dude, look, I'm struggling with this, I'm struggling with that. Mm. What I see in society, so to speak now, is people that just self-diagnose. Oh, my God, yeah. Just okay. straight up, fuck, I'm manic depressive. I'm yeah. this, I'm that, I'm ADD. They're so um, we, we pigeonhole ourselves now. Yes. What happened like 20 years ago, people used to pigeonhole us, now we pigeonhole ourselves. And I struggle with people that say that they struggle. Does that make sense? Yes. I yeah, str- shit, yeah, I know exactly I struggle what you mean, to yeah. understand why they're struggling because um, they're not so much asking for help. They're just telling you what's wrong with them. Right, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. And there's no solution there except for the doctor. Well, is... They don't want a solution. Right. If you give them a solution, that takes them out of their position in the team. Right. Yeah, well, it takes it, – it, it's like it becomes a part of their identity. It's like it, I'm it anxious, yes. I suffer from anxiety, I also suffer from blah, 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 whatever, and then it's yeah. like, oh, good, these are things that you can stack up around you to protect you from the world, and that's all that is, and yeah. you're just going to stay inside there. So any level of protection around you, just like a brick wall, is like, great, there's a brick wall around you, nobody's getting in, but yeah. nobody's getting out. Yeah, you're not getting right. touched. Nobody can touch you through a brick wall. Yeah. As I said before about, you know, don't wish for a life that's free of bad stuff. Like yes, yeah. Wish for a life that where you can sort of handle that br- bad stuff. What did Bruce Lee say? Bruce Lee said something like that. Don't wish for a, a life. Oh, I'm going to have to read up on that. It's, <laughs> it's basically that. Don't, don't ask for a life that's perfect. Ask for a life where you can handle the bullshit. Right. You can file it away and deal with it and move on. It's It's... It's nonstop. It's always coming. Mm. Life is full of bullshit moments. Have you ever heard of um, uh, this thing? It's called, uh, what's the normalcy bias? Have I talked to you about this? No. This is so interesting. So this book, um, I go on and on about this book because it's the best thing in the world. It's a book that breaks down a lot of human cognitive processes, so ways that we get in the way of ourselves. Yeah. And there's a, one of these biases called normalcy bias. And essentially what happens is that when the brain gets into a panic state, if it's never been prepped for this event before in its life, yeah. you'll just stop. Yeah. You'll just freeze. And it's not even a freezing in the headlights. It's like literally you'll just like lay down and go to sleep. So the, the example he uses in the book is that um, an airplane came flying into an airport. It landed and everybody's like shuffling, getting their bags together. And at the same time, it was a foggy airport. Another airplane was taking off. And they miscommunicated with each other. So one of the airplanes just T-boned the other one pretty much and just flew into the side of it. And there were maybe 60 survivors in the one plane. All of it, everybody else just got incinerated. And the survivors told the story later and they were like, there were people sitting in their chairs, like repacking their bags. Some people laid down in the aisle. Some people just sat in the chair and stared forward. Not paralyzed by fear. I mean, just literally acting like nothing was happening. And so the, the actual psychological foundation of this is that when we don't know how to react to a situation, we just freeze and try to make it seem normal. <laughs> so we'll just try and subdue the chaos so that it's like, oh, no, no this is normal. This, this is, is normal. It's meant to be. And so that's a long tangent to get back to your point where you were saying if you don't have anything bad happen to you, you you know you don't want to live a life like that. You want to be able to live a life that has challenges. But even bigger than that, for the sake of your cognitive processes, you must. Because if you don't have adverse experiences in yes. your life, yeah. you will never be able to react, react to anything. You don't grow. Yeah, you, you, you just freeze you in grow. your chair. Yeah, we've all had a heart broken by a girl or a guy mm. and you learn to grow. It might make your uh, skin a bit thicker or a bit tougher, but you learn 
to filter out certain things that you're not going to fall for that same trap. So that's right. growing, yeah? Yeah. You've had um, a, a fucking great job that went down the gurgler. Well, you're going to know what to look for next time. Why did it go down the gurgler? Was it me? Was it him? What, what was yeah. it? Yeah. So you definitely got to have bad shit go on. No one likes bad shit, mm. but you have to have it in your life and you have to deal with it and that's as simple as that. I, I'm reading a book at the moment which has been around for a while but I finally got around to read it. It's uh, um, the, the Art of Not Giving a Fuck. <laughs> yeah. It's so cool. It's, uh, this book is unreal. I'm only a third of the way through it but it's like I'm sitting in a bar talking to a guy who is me that's lived my life and he's telling me how I should live the rest of my life. Right. And the, the biggest thing I'm getting it from it is that we give a fuck about way too much stuff yeah. and way too much stuff that like – I'm not trying to trivialise it, um, trivialise it, but I personally can't do anything about what's going on in Israel at the moment. Right. I can't change that. I, I, I've accepted that. That is going to happen whether I go over there and take up arms or join the UN or whatever fucking happens. It's been going on for hundreds of years. Mm. So I'm talking to what this book is teaching me to do, and I, I've, I think I really enjoy the book because I've sort of already found it is instead of giving away a million fucks to all these things that don't matter, find something you do give a fuck about and throw everything at it. Right. So for yeah. me, that's that's Muay Thai. I do give a fuck about Muay Thai. I really want to see it grow, especially in, in Australia. I want to see it grow worldwide, everything yeah. like that. So I've thrown myself into Muay Thai. That's what I do. I yeah. don't do golf. I don't play football. I don't sit at the pub and bet on horses. I, <laughs> I do Muay Thai. That's what I do. And I... I, I Quite happily sit here at age 46 and say, I want to still be doing that when I'm 86. Yeah. I still want to be involved somehow. So um, I think a lot of other people could be uh, beneficial from doing the same thing. Finding something they give a fuck about and just throwing everything into it. Yeah. And don't give a fuck about the other stuff that is going wrong in the world that, uh, you know, social media is a great thing until they start showing people getting shot in the back of the head or, you know, babies getting burnt from bomb drops and and it's fucked. Like, it is fucked. It's fucked, and we need to see it so that we know that that exists. But you don't need to – You do, it's not contributing to your life. Not any... contributing and not controlling my life. Yes. I'm not going to go out and uh, – honestly, I, I, I don't hold it against people doing rallies and all that sort of stuff. I may be a bit – I might, could be criticised for this too, but let's hope no one ever listens. <laughs> no one listens. But I ain't going <laughs> to go okay. on a fucking rally on the Gold Coast protesting what's happening in Palestine and Israel. Because that – Fucking not going to change a thing. Mm. It's just expressing myself. Okay, if that makes you feel better and you want to do it, you go and do it. Mm. I'm not holding that against you. I'm not telling you to spend your time better or anything like that. It just doesn't do it for me. Right. So I'm not going to be forced into doing it by society saying, oh, you don't protest, so you're a wanker. You agree yeah, you with don't it. Care no, I, don't. I don't fucking agree with it. I, don't. I hate guns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, guns yeah. are for shooting rodent pests, you know, not, <laughs> not for people, you know. Mm. Um. So that part of it is, is uh, I've found something that I love and that I give a fuck about and I'm throwing my life into it, my family's life, and everyone comes along on the ride with me um, and other people should do the same. Find one thing that they care about and chase it. Yeah. And, and you'll be surprised where it takes you. How do you think you go about finding that thing? Um, open yourself up to it, you know, like... You don't have to go and join different sports clubs. or It can be the simplest thing. It could be mm. your art. It could be um, a relationship. I read about the guy that got kicked out of the Beatles, the drummer. Yeah. yeah. You ever hear about him? No. So when the Beatles were about to make it big, they had a specific drummer. I don't know his name. But 
he got kicked out of the band right when they were about to go crazy big. Right, oh. crazy big. So, I mean, I'd be pissed off. You'd, you'd sue the band, you'd do this, you'd do that. This guy, years later, was interviewed and he said, fucking best thing that ever happened to me. Whoa. I found my wife, I found my kids, my life is complete. Like, oh, yeah, wow. sure, I didn't get the fame and the millions of dollars, but he said, you know, remember one of those guys got shot for being famous. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, that could yeah. have been me. And, and that's that weird, that idea of, as you started, the very first thing you said in this podcast pretty much is like, what your picture of success is. It doesn't matter if, like... It, if fame is success, then it's not everybody's success because no. some people will be fucking miserable. And yeah. as you said before... Most of them are. <laughs> they're, they're all fucking raging uh, drug addicts and alcoholics. Yeah. We're trying to fill some void, yeah. Because fuck that. Imagine not being able to just go out to the grocery store and just walk around. Like, I cannot mm. imagine anything yep. worse. It would be so fucking isolating. You never know. You can't mm. trust anybody's intentions. You never know if someone's just trying to be a hanger-on or not yeah. or they're trying to get some shit from you. But um, like you were saying before about Nathan, and this is something that I think I'm I'm just starting to kind of figure out about myself, is that I need to test myself, but you didn't need to be the guy in the ring. You found your success in being the one that helped him get into the ring. Yeah. And and I genuinely believe you when you said, oh, I didn't want to be that guy getting my belt, the belt around his waist. And you know, you, someone else can say that to me and you see in their eyes flicker and they see them get all tense and yeah. they go, no, nah, I didn't, I don't yeah, give I a fuck. Yeah, yeah, I never yeah, wanted yeah. it. <laughs> but well, you know, they did. But that's the thing. It's like you understood your true nature, I guess. Yeah. And you followed it. That was, yeah. You could say my calling, so to speak. I, I mean, I got a belt when I was, Fighting, I, I won mm, a state title. Yeah. I was really happy with that state title. I was so proud. I've still got it in the gym, you know. Yeah, cool. But I did get a hell of a lot more um, pleasure in seeing people go from, you know, mediocre, so to speak, uh, athletes to supreme athletes. You know, where yeah. they're, they're really accomplishing and stuff. And I'm hoping that they go on and pass that same thing on, get the same feeling, because it is a very different feeling to win in your own belt. Oh. Watching someone else win a belt is very, very rewarding. It's good. It's still a chase for me. Like I'd still love to uh, find a kid in the gym and, and take him from zero to hero. I, I, my own wife, I found her in the gym. Yeah. Took her from zero fights to amateur world champion, you know. So yeah. it was it was awesome. Now we, we, we're on another journey now where we've got kids. And that's, mm. It's massive, you know, having – I'm responsible for these three little humans. They're the cutest little humans. <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. right? But it's, it's um, that that journey in itself. Now I can really start to step back. Like I've stepped back from the the Muay Thai side of things because now I know I want to be the dad to my kids that my dad was to me. He was an yeah. awesome supporter of anything I did, even the stupid shit. <laughs> you know, like um, uh, he was one of those dads that come to every training session of football. Uh, he oh, came right. to every fight I did, ever, and never once did he tell me I should be doing this or mm. oh, why the why did you do that? Why don't you do it like this? He was always like, "How'd you go? You know, did you have fun? It was good. Yeah, it was awesome." And yeah, yeah so Dad was cool like that. He was a good dad in that. He was a sports mad dad, so oh, he, he was happy to awesome. watch me. Yeah, yeah. I had two older brothers that weren't really sporty, so to speak. So I think by the time number three came along, I was like, all right, this guy's playing sport. <laughs> yeah, one of them's got to. <laughs> Someone has to. So. <laughs> Maybe yeah. they injected you when you were a baby and yeah, that's why you ended up the way you did. definitely put some sports in me. But, um, yeah, no, the dad was excellent in that part as a dad. He was, he was a really good supportive dad. So I'm now trying to do that with my boys. Just whatever mm. they do, I'll just follow them and go along yeah, and let try them and go. learn it. Yeah, yeah, as long as they're doing something. 
I know, and that, that's the old thing like about um, it's what we get with fighters, but it's what is really common with addicts as well is that it starts out when it's a restricted thing. You're not allowed to have it. You're not allowed to do it. Yeah. You can't have that. And so then immediately it's like, well, what's over there? Yeah, of course. What is that? Yeah. I need to try that. Uh, My parents are the same. They were really good for me. They, from the, well... No, my parents, uh, none of the things you said were the same with my parents, mm. except for with drugs and alcohol, which is really funny. Like, I, they hated me playing sports. I used to play ice hockey, and I wanted to get better at it. Um, I just was addicted to it. You know, you've seen the way I train. I'm the same yeah. way I was with every sport I've ever done. I just can't get enough of it, so I was just an addict. And then um, I... So I decided to join the boys' hockey team as well as the girls' team so I could play and just take my level up. Yeah. And I had to lie to them to tell them, like I would tell them I was going to a party to hang out with my friends. And I would go to the ice rink and go to practice. (laughs) Because they were happier for me to be out drinking as long as they knew I was like safe and and responsible. Because we know how safe kids are when they're out drinking. Yeah, which I never was, obviously. (laughs) But they were good about that. Like, So I never had to hide anything from them except for my sports achievements. (laughs) So weird. I know. I, I think they just thought it was too violent. And then I was like, oh, well, I'll take this. I'm going to become a Muay Thai fighter. Why not? <laughs> On the, I mean, now being a parent, I realize that there is no manual for being a parent. So yeah. it, it's it's oh. very easy to criticize. Um, not, not that you criticize, but it's easy to criticize what your parents done for you yeah. as compared to what you can do for other kids, you know, that sort of thing. And again, it comes down to I was like this because my mum and dad made me do this or do that. There's no manual. It is. I, I'm always getting it wrong and and um, <laughs> learning. Occasionally, I get it right, and it's good fun. But um, yeah, I, I've I was very happy with my upbringing. This is why I come back to that that anger issue. I just don't know. Why. <laughs> I still don't know why I was so angry. I had so yeah, much yeah, anger that's for the world. So crazy. And um, but uh, mum and dad were good. They were good. Good. good they still are good people. So yeah. yeah. Well, you're gonna. You are a great dad. I've loved watching you with your kids. We always think. We always talk about that. Like oh, when good. you see you with your kids, we're always like, "That's the way." We I have need a lot of fun. Kids. The kids. Yeah. The kids. Are, I let them enough rope that they can't hang themselves, but they they definitely get themselves tied up in knots <laughs> into some trouble. And uh, I think having three boys is a blessing because Melissa is uh, more of a tomboy girl. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. she's not a girly girl. And um, having three boys is uh, exactly what uh, I wanted. To Without saying it out loud, you know, obviously if I had a girl, I'd, I'd love her the same. But I wanted boys. Mm. I grew up with two older brothers before my younger sister come along and fucked everything up. <laughs> <laughs> I ruined it for everyone. Is no. it because she got all the attention? Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why I was angry. She got all the but, um, you know, growing up with boys, it was uh, rough and tough. And, you know, mm. you had to stand up for yourself. And you could go sooking to mum. And after a while, mum said, oh, look after yourself, you know. Yeah, go back and sort it out. Deal with it, yeah. So that was good. And now my boys get that now at age eight, four and two. They get told to deal with it a lot. Like from I've made a uh, conscious effort and um, Melissa was the same, that whenever they fall over, we do not pick them up. Oh, wow. So that started from the minute they could walk, if they fell over, we're not to pick them up. And we've done that with all three boys. They fall off their bikes, they fall off their skateboards and like all kids do, they lay there and start crying thinking that you're going to come pick them up. You leave them be, they pick themselves up, they start riding their bike again. If you are moving off down the street with the other two, they've got a choice. Stay there and cry and hope someone picks up or get up on your feet and start moving. moving, Well, it's worked because my boys are what I call, you know, tough boys. They they do hurt themselves. I see them mark (laughs) themselves up and fall and 
whatnot, and there's no safety net at our place. I've got yeah. a cubby house with a climbing wall on the side and, cool. you know, there's areas they can fall out of. They, they sort themselves out. Yeah. We don't want them to hurt themselves. I mean, no one wants them to hurt themselves, but I don't want them to be a Wrapped, yeah, yeah, wrapped in cotton wool. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole, like, that is a scary progression that we're heading down this yeah. whole weird world where everybody's bullied and I'm hurt all the time yeah. and I'm a victim. And I mean, this victim mentality is so fucking scary. It's the worst, yeah. man. There's yeah. nothing worse than, like, just as you said from the beginning, like, not taking responsibility, man. Yeah. If you don't take responsibility for what goes on in your life, I can't help you. Nobody can. No one can. And, and, and the whole victim mentality is, is just a choice. That you've made for yourself, and that's yeah. your role in society. You want to be the victim guy, be the victim guy. Just don't fucking waste my time with it. Yeah. I, I, this is, um, you see a lot of things about bullying, and again, social media. You know, I'm sort of not into the social media scene as much as I used to be. I've definitely that's pulled away from it because I just got a bit sick of oh, this guy got bullied, and that it happens. It's part of growing up. It's I got bullied to a certain point at school. You know, mm. like I, I remember one guy. I don't remember his name, but I do remember him like hucking up a loogie and spitting on me and it was on my jumper and I was disgusted and I oh. couldn't. And I had a choice, let him spit on me or do something about it. The guy was two years older than me. You know, I was grade four, I think. He must have been grade six. And, yeah, I remember thinking to myself, fuck that, I'm, I'm just <laughs> <so I laughs> picked up a paver out of the garden and smacked him in the head with it. <laughs> oh Never came God. near me again, ever did he come near me and and – Never did he, anyone look at me, and I, I was lucky. I had two older brothers at the same school, so mm. and one of them was quite crazy. But um, you know, we were not a reputation, but from an early point, I knew I had to stand up for myself. This this guy had spat a horrible Ugh. loogie. I mean, it makes me sick thinking about it now. But I remember yeah. it on my jumper, and I didn't know whether to wipe it off or take my jumper off. I was so um, like what you said about those people on the plane. I just started to shut down. I was like, oh, that's normal. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's on me. You know. <laughs> And then something just snapped in. I was like, fuck this guy. You know, this is going to happen every day. And I could see. Mm-hmm. I went to an all boys school from grade three to grade six. Oh, wow. Christian Brothers College, it was called, where all the teachers were turned out to be bloody pedophiles and whatnot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, really gross. Yeah, yeah. But they used to give you the cane. They used to strap you. They made tough men of these boys. You know, a lot of these boys were from um, not so pleasant backgrounds. And, and then the teachers were bullies to them, you know. Yeah, fuck. Yeah, so you sort of learnt pretty quick. You. Stood on your own two feet, or you were the one that got picked on, and, and this guy Shit. spat on me in front of so many people, and I like oh. man, I made the choice to stand up for myself. So I think actually now, just speaking about it, that was probably the start. That was one of my first memories of school. So, wow! So a gross one in that, but um, maybe that was the difference between why I I didn't get picked on and the kids around me did. You know? So. Yeah. Yeah, this man. crazy paver kid. <laughs> I know. I remember or rock or something like that. I can't remember. It's the paver, I think. Oh, we were we were at the gym the other day, and um, uh, Charlie, one of your middle son, was complaining that Noah had that his older brother had done something to him, and. It was so funny. I was walking up the ladder, so I was way outside of earshot, and I could just barely hear you walk around the corner and go, listen, I've told you once and I've told you again. I thought, I actually thought you were going over to Noah to tell him to stop picking on his brother. I thought you were walking over to Noah, and then you go, I've told you once, I'll tell you again. 
Punch him in the face. Yeah, punch him in the face. That's my answer for everything. He won't do it again. Yeah. It was the best line ever. I was like, that. well, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably not the best parenting <laughs> advice, but he will learn to stand up for himself. He, 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 um, he's a middle child, so he's got middle child syndrome. Mm. There's another diagnosis done by Dr. Richie. <laughs> but he's at that stage now where uh, he definitely will snap soon like, like, and crack Noah. And Noah, Noah's... A, a really, really different kid. He's he's so nice to people. Like, yeah. I'm afraid for Noah that he's going to get trampled on as he gets older because he won't fight back because oh, he's well. scared of the whole um, school policy. You, know, you can't do this at school. You can't do that. Yeah, yeah. I said, what are you going to do? Let a kid fucking push you around? You know, you at some stage of life you have to stand up for yourself, even as a kid. You know. Yeah. Um, but Charlie's. The other way around. He will fire back one day and that'll be it. Noah will never tease him or bully him or hang <laughs> shit on him or do it. It's just interesting to watch it. Um, and isn't it amazing like that you're – the environment's the same, the kids are the same, the parents are the same, the house is the same, but every single kid's totally different. Totally different. Totally different. Totally yeah. different personalities. The little one at the moment, I mean all parents know this, is like he's at two years old and he thinks at the moment that if he cries tears of sheer pain that he'll get whatever he wants. Yeah. It ain't working. (laughs) And he's like bawling his eyes out over the littlest thing. And we keep saying, you just can't fix yourself by crying. Crying's worthless, you know. So it's funny watching a two-year-old look at you that can hardly speak and you can sort of see it starting to sink in. It's been three months now that he's realised that if he really cries hard, he might get that yoghurt or get the pencil that his brother's stolen, you know. (laughs) But now because we don't falter on it and we don't give into it he's starting to realize it uh, gotta working. find a new way well that's so cool that's also another thing about finding those boundaries um is that like y- you know like you have to try those things as a kid and and to age two is two, that age yeah, where they start to twos. develop their um their sense of self yes um and so then they've got this like so they're developing this little sense of self they've got, got to go out and see what works what works okay that didn't work i'll try another tactic yep. but if ever if you always let them do the thing that works then as you said it just becomes this like ingrained yep. pattern exactly. and then that's it that that's who they become for the rest of their life yep. i think resistance is one of the most amazing best things for you as scary as it is to come up against and i fight it i mean in in just figuring out if I want to be a fighter or not and going through all the fight camps and over and over and over again, it's like there's so many voices in your head that are telling you you can or you can't or you should or you shouldn't or whatever. And it's like only through going through those things am I starting to differentiate between what is the voice that's good for me and what's the one that's stopping me from doing shit. Yeah. I still, still, with a lot of things, have that doubting voice. I'm I'm never um, immune to that. That, that, that. my doubting voice creeps in from time to time that mm. I think – and but now, in, in especially in the last couple of years, I've actually become aware of it and yeah. I, it's like a third person inside my brain. I start saying, no, don't listen to him. He's a fuckwit. You know, <laughs> yes. Do what you thought. Stick to your plan and do it. Um, we started last year working with a business coach who um, – uh, Andrew Sparks, the guy's a fucking legend. Mm. And he before he was a business coach, he was a um, life coach, which yeah. even he said – you know, he sort of raises his eyebrows. Yeah, oh, that was weird. Yeah, yeah. He's, the found, old life he's coach found his he's found his place, and it's a business coach. But most of his business coaching is on mindset, mm-hmm. so it's putting a goal in your head and working towards it. But he gives you the good thing about this guy is he like lots of um, business coaches or whatever will tell you do this, do this, and do this, but they don't tell you how to do that. They yeah. don't give you the tools how to do that. 
this guy's given us the tools how to do it wow. and broken down a few barriers. And it's it's really interesting because um, our business is definitely improving since we've been with this guy. But my personal life is changing so much. Like, cool. Yeah, really good. Like, it's been a big development. In six months, it's been a big development. Even to the point I'm back out running. <laughs> I haven't run in 15 years. <laughs> I but, know. Uh, I saw you doing the whole circus with the boys the other morning. You're sparring oh, and yeah. doing everything. Yeah, I'm loving it. Like, uh, oh, I, I so feel cool. young. I, d- I definitely don't feel... I don't know what a 45-year-old's meant to feel like, but I don't feel 45. I, I, no. I don't act 45. I just I feel young again, so it's good. It's a, it's a very good thing for me to be doing is this business course, which is actually really just a mindset course, you know. So. And isn't that funny? Like you'd normally just react weird to something like that. Like fucking business, as if I'm just running a gym, you know, as yeah. if I need some bullshit like that. Well, but I, it's funny because his timing was perfect because um, – I had recognised that I, when I was boxing, I had a boxing coach. When I was Muay Thai, I had a Muay Thai coach. When I did weights for a little while, I had a weights coach. Never had a business coach. Mm. Dad and I had a business in town, um, a glazing business where the phone rang, you picked it up, you went and did the job. They yeah. paid you. That was, that was it. It was a small town. So um, then I had the lead light shop and I didn't know how to advertise to customers. I didn't know how to attract people to my business. So it wasn't a good business. Yeah. Hence why when I get the chance to come to the Gold Coast, I just flicked the whole lot and yeah. left, you know. So um, come around, I, I had a glazing business on the Gold Coast and exactly the same thing. I worked off people just ringing me. I ran an ad in the Yellow Pages back in the days before <laughs> int- intranet was in. <laughs> um, and um, I just did that and that was a good business but it wasn't great. So I'd never knew how to run a business or how to attract clients. My thing with the gym was I'd meet someone, hey, you want to train? Yep, let's go. There's the gym. Or if they said no, I'd say, yeah, sweet. See you later. Yeah, yeah. This guy's teaching me there's more to it than that. You know, there's a lot of people out there that need help. And I I think that's sort of going back on that thing. I like helping people. And Muay Thai gives me that tool to help people. If they're prepared to come to the gym, I will make a difference for them. You know, if they're prepared to put in... They'll make even bigger difference, you know, bigger mm. difference. So I think that's that's been good. It's been a great six months already, and I'm looking forward to doing more with him because I know we can do more. So yeah, well, you're, I, I mean, your gym radiates your personality. Like the people that you and Melissa are is what you've created with yeah. that business. Like the and, and it does change people. Oh, I mean, we've seen just in the last two years that I've been here with you how many people came and yep. changed and all the stories we hear all the time. But even I'm definitely my own personal story. I'm just knowing that I had a home to come to after yep. all that shit and just being completely lost and fucked and then coming here and becoming a fighter and doing all the shit that I've done with yep. you guys. Like, yep. I and just, that's only the beginning. I mean, that's, to me, the fighting part of it's great, but it's mm. not what defines you in the end. It's... Uh, it's changing uh, habits or changing lifestyles. And, and yeah. I think the um, big thing without preaching about it so much is just changing the thought pattern of people. Yeah. Uh, when you say, oh, you could do this, you could do that, you, you look at people and, and you know they're thinking inside, I ain't never going to do that. How could I do that? You know? Yeah, yeah. But then two years down the track, they're in the ring. They're having a fight. And, again, the ring is not about the fight. No, it's about doing something you journey. thought you couldn't do. Yeah, Fuck it's a yeah. journey. Um, it's a massive journey. Like it's like, fuck, I could actually fight. Like imagine me in the ring like that guy, you know, like that's crazy. Mm. I have football players, 110 kilos, say, dude, how do you fight? That's just like one-on-one in the ring with no one else there to help you, you know. Yeah. Uh, on a football field you've got 18, 20 guys behind you. You're confident, you know. You've yeah. got these big units. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that, that 
that part of it, being able to see that I can help people and, and do it, that's a massive thing for me to be able to keep doing that, offering my services to people, offering my gym to people, let yeah. them come in, train, and if they put in, they get the results, simple as that. Yeah, you definitely do see people come in and not put in, <laughs> which is disappointing, <laughs> but that's their choice again. that's yeah, I can't make them do it, mm. but I've got the facility there for them to do it and the people around them that will help them. But And we've built a good community. I mean, community. you've built this yeah. community and you choose the people that come in and out and the people that stay in our gym yeah, are I've, people that... Yeah, urban, um, urban Flight Gym has been open since 2010, so it's now 2018. I've kicked out more people in eight years than I have any other gym the 25 years or 20 years prior to that. Yeah, wow. Because back then I used to put up with it mm. and there'd be a wanker that I thought, God, this guy's such a wanker, you know, <laughs> I wish he'd leave, you know. Now you, you, um, you rock the boat too much. I'll just say there's the footpath. Yeah. See you later. And yeah. it's, you know, it's not easy. I don't like kicking people out of the gym, but don't get me wrong, but I've probably kicked out more people out of this gym than any other because I love the way it feels. Yeah. As soon as you kick those guys out, at least six people come and, oh, I'm so glad that guy's gone. <laughs> yeah. yeah, who would have known? Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Oh, man, well, it's awesome talking to you. We've yeah, it's good. We've been talking for a while now, so I'll end it on that. Um, how do people come and find you? Oh, intranet. The intranet. A, the intra online. <laughs> <laughs> they can do that. The best, I mean, Facebook's all the, way, all the go now. Um Google, Urban Fight Gym. Yeah. Um, just get on there, find the details, give me a call. Um, the biggest step is the first step. That's it. Once you're in the door, you realise that everyone in there are just normal people that yeah. train and have fun and, and you do build a good little community. So yeah, man. It's a good place to be. Awesome. All right, well, I'll put all the links to that on here and um, thank you heaps for coming. Thanks. We'll have you again another day. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> Thanks, Lindsay. <laughs>